You know, uh, I've been thinking it's getting a little bit, <clears throat> if you'll pardon me, a little bit nostalgic as I think through this journey we've been through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we started it, I believe, in January of 2020. And it's kind of been interesting that we've had the privilege of walking through a pandemic with the story of Jesus right alongside of us. And it's been pretty stunning, really, how culturally relevant all these passages written in the first century are to us today when it comes to the Gospel of Mark. And so we have this week where we're talking about the tomb and Jesus' burial. Next week, which I've entitled Grace Life Easter, when we talk about the resurrection. <clears throat> and then we'll have one week of conclusion. And that'll be it. Now, I know some of you think, so soon, Joe, 80 messages? <laughs> but you know, I don't know how many of you have actually gone through a systematic study of any of the Gospels in your life. And if you haven't, this has been your opportunity. And if you've missed any, as part of Grace Life, I know there's several people today, I was looking at the numbers, several people watching online from home today. If you've missed any of them, they're all on the YouTube channel. I encourage you to go back because it is very important for you to understand the story of your Savior. We like to get everything in sound bites in Twitter format, but it's important to understand the full narrative of our Jesus, is it not? To understand all of his teachings. So with that in mind, we're going to, you bring up the slides, we're going to week number 78, and I've entitled this message, Hope at the Tomb. See, hope is a distinctly human concept, right? This is something that animals cannot comprehend, for better or for worse, right? I mean, dogs don't hope for anything. All they want is what they want now. They want to be petted. They want to be loved. They want food. They want to go to the bathroom. That's it. <laughs> <clears throat> Humans are the only creation of God that can really understand the concept of hope. And there are, if you really boil it down, there are really only two types of hope. There's earthly hope which is simply put our desire for specific temporal outcomes that either meet or exceed our expectations. That's what earthly hope is. It is a simple desire for a specific temporary outcome that meets or exceeds our expectations. Earthly hopes come in many forms. Now underneath that, there's, there's political hope. Many people have hope in politics, whether their team wins or loses, and that will be the answer to our problems wrong. Then there's financial hope. If I have just enough money or make, have just enough resources, then I'll be wrong. Some people have physical hope. If I can just get healthy again, if I can just get over this, and they think if I can be physical, uh, physically fit in some sort of way, wrong. Sometimes earthly hopes are just circumstantial. I'd rather have a better job, or I'd rather have a better house, or I'd rather be in this particular place in my life. Sometimes our earthly hope is even defined by our relationships. And earthly hope, it's important you understand this, earthly hope is very alluring. It's addicting. It's a very powerful drug, earthly hope. And unchecked, Earthly hope and your desire for it will suck up all your attention, all your resources, all your passion, and sadly, all your talents. Earthly hope has the potential at times to convince us to do almost anything necessary to fulfill those desires. Yet even in the best of circumstances, earthly hope is temporary at best. Ending ironically 
at the tomb for all of us. Death. But then there's eternal hope. A desire for something beyond earthly hope, something after this life, beyond even this particular dimension that we live in. For Christians, it's hope for redemption, for connection to heavenly dad, hope for eternal life, overcoming death, overcoming sin. Our eternal hope is supernatural, and I've said this to you before, I've taught you this. Our eternal hope is supernatural in that it is divine in its inspiration, and it is also divine in its installation into our hearts. It is a result, eternal hope, of one thing. It is the gift of faith. Eternal hope transforms how we view the world around us. And in its purest form, and this is what I love about eternal hope the most, in its purest form, eternal hope enables us to escape the prison of earthly hope. Because that's what earthly hope is. It's a prison. Eternal hope provides the inspiration and the comfort when earthly hope inevitably fails us. And it will. It empowers us to live courageously, eternal hope does. It empowers us to live sacrificially. And in the story of the burial of Jesus, we see a transition in one man's life from earthly hope to an eternal hope in this man named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph found, ironically, eternal hope in the most unlikely places, the place where earthly hope always dies, a tomb. So with that in mind, let's read our passage from Mark 15. 42 to 47, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, Sanhedrin, interesting, right? Who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, fascinating description, took courage, took courage, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, who, by the way, is a believer now. We remember we learned that last week. He asked him whether he was already dead. And when Pilate learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down from the cross, imagine that in your head, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So like we do each week, we look at each part of the scripture. We look at the historical application first. What about man? What did he do? And, and why and how did he do it? I've entitled the historical section today, Joseph of Arimathea. I'm going to tell you about him. First of all, he was a faithful Pharisee. It's Good Friday, right? It's, they didn't know it's Good Friday. For us, we look back and we know that it's Good Friday, the day that Jesus died. And, but it's also for them the day of preparation before Passover, Particularly important, this is the Passover, or Sabbath after Passover. It's the most important Passover of the year. And the day before that would be very important to prepare, especially if you're a Pharisee. All four Gospels actually mention Joseph of Arimathea. Isn't that interesting? As just that. He was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. We know he was a Pharisee for this reason. First of all, Mark and Luke described Joseph as one who was looking for or waiting for the kingdom of heaven, meaning he's waiting for a Messiah to come and restore the kingdom of David. That's what he was looking and waiting for. 
That's what the Pharisees were. The Sadducees didn't care about that. They liked big Rome to be in charge. The Pharisees wanted to make Israel great again, if you will. They wanted to get back to their roots. That's what they thought they wanted. Matthew and John, though, refer to Joseph as a person looking for the restoration of the throne of David. And this is how we know Joseph of Arimathea was, in fact, a Pharisee. His hope for a restoration in an earthly Jewish kingdom. He went there initially having earthly hope. But Matthew also says, interestingly, he was a disciple of Christ. And I want to use this word was, and I actually put it in my notes in quotations. It is an actual, and I'm going to explain this to you in the Greek. There's a Greek tense called the aorist passive tense. What it means is he had been becoming a disciple over time. That's what Matthew says. Matthew says he was looking for the kingdom, and he had become a disciple through the process. He was adapting and becoming a disciple. There was something going on in his heart and mind, and he was becoming a follower of Jesus. And it's an ongoing thing based upon a past action, a passive past actions. So it is a passive aorist tense, meaning something happened, which we believe is the Spirit of God, that was transforming him into a child of God. That's how Matthew describes him. Wait, how did that happen? He's a Pharisee. When did this process for Joseph start? Well, I have a guess. I can't tell you for sure, but I think my guess was it was in the temple earlier that week, and I'll tell you. Do you remember before the crucifixion, I believe Joseph was being persuaded that Jesus was the promised Messiah he hoped for. Perhaps it starts in Mark 12, if you remember, we preached through this, when Jesus was being questioned in the temple by a group of Pharisees about paying Roman taxes. And it says that the best Pharisees went to go try to trap Jesus, try to get the Romans to turn against him, because surely he'll say that you shouldn't pay taxes. But Mark says that the Pharisees marveled at Jesus' answer. The word marvel means astonished, captivated, makes you change your thought process. And Mark says the Pharisees that were there were marveled at Jesus' answer about Roman taxes. We won't get into that today. But being a prominent member, a prominent Pharisee, one of the leading Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, Joseph was likely one of those questioning Jesus. But at this point, Joseph's devotion, Joseph's affinity, Joseph's affection for Jesus is developing, but it's kind of secret. But then Joseph does something fabulous. He embraces shame. So now Jesus is dead, and something extraordinary happens. Joseph is inspired. The scripture says he takes courage. He's inspired to go public with his affection for Jesus. Because association with a crucified prisoner any crucified prisoner was a badge of shame. But Joseph at this point doesn't care. Something has changed in him. And he does something normally the family would only do to a crucified prisoner, ask Rome or Pilate for permission to bury them. The request that Joseph makes is very public. He can't like sneak into Pilate's you know, office and say, hey, Pilate, shh. Can you sneak me the body of Jesus? That's not how this goes down. The Sanhedrin are crowded around Pilate to make sure everything is going smooth, and you'll see that in a moment. This is very public. Other members of the Sanhedrin know that he's there. They hear his request, but Joseph doesn't care anymore. Now, Pilate, the scripture says, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead since only a few hours had passed since he was crucified. Normally, crucifixion would take two or three days. Jesus is dead in a matter of two or three hours. 
So Pilate asked the centurion, who, if you remember, is now a believer. Remember the story we talked about last week. This Roman centurion who oversaw the crucifixion says, I need you to confirm that Jesus is actually dead. I find it hard to believe that only two hours have passed and he's gone. He confirms that he's dead. And then Pilate releases the body of Jesus to Joseph. I wonder... You know, this is pure speculation. I know some of you like it when I hate it. My, uh, like it when I do this. My wife hates it. Just to let you know. I wonder what the relationship was between Joseph and the centurion at this point. Like, I wonder if they caught each other's eye. And I just, I just wonder you, because you know, you ever been in a room and maybe of strangers, but you can pick up on someone's a, a brother or sister in Christ. I just wonder. You know, I just speculation on that. Then we have this funeral preparation. Here's this Pharisee taking down the body of Jesus from the cross in a very public way to prepare him for burial. The first thing he does, I'm sure, when the cross comes down is he takes that stupid sign that says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He takes that down. He probably removes the crown of thorns from Jesus' head. Remember those that were beat into his head? He probably takes that off, removes the nails from his hands and his feet, And as a Pharisee, he would know better than anyone the strict rituals for burial preparation. So he would have been cleaning the body. Then he wraps it in fine white burial linen before placing Jesus into a rich man's tomb. Understand why we know this is a rich man's tomb. Tombs were often reused. What would happen is you would place a body in a tomb, and a few years later you would come back and collect the bones and put them in a box and and take the box and put it somewhere else, and then you'd reuse the tomb for someone else. That's how they were used. This is a never-used tomb. That's what the wealthy had. He puts Jesus in this rich man's tomb, puts the stone in place. Now, let me ask you a question. What would inspire Joseph to make such a public expression of affection for a dead, crucified Jesus? But then we see also, Mark says, the women the ones that were watching in the last passage we talked about last week, while all the other apostles are running scared, the women are still there watching. They see where Jesus' body is laid. They, too, have this same affection somehow that Joseph of Arimathea does. Their plan is to return in about a day and a half after Sabbath and continue with the burial process with the spices and other things. But as we will learn next week, there will be an amazing surprise waiting for them. Don't miss it talk about the spiritual section what about god what does he do and why and how does he do it i want to talk about hope in the tomb first of all there is this resurrection hope and this is what is dominating the heart and mind of joseph of arimathea arimathea now we understand jesus only died in a couple hours so the timing of death jesus or jesus's death tells us he didn't die from his wounds he died by his choice we could preach for a month on that alone don't worry i won't <laughs> But there's so much more going on here than just Jesus' death. I could also preach for a month on how he was buried in a rich man's tomb, how it is a miraculous fulfillment of prophecy, but don't worry, we're not going to preach on that today either. All that is good stuff, and it's good theology, and it's good teaching. But what really stuck out for me this week as I was writing this sermon is how dead Jesus inspires Joseph the Pharisee and gives him a new type of hope. In the burial process itself, the Spirit of God is working in the heart of many, even while Jesus is still dead. And it's easy to miss this, right? Because we want to get to the resurrection as fast as we can, because that's the victorious part. But 
Joseph's burial of Jesus is an inspired action of courage and sacrifice that is, in fact, driven by hope. It started with this teaching in March, Mark 8, which had been spread all throughout people who heard it, even the Sanhedrin. Here was the teaching. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, in other words, the Sanhedrin, and be killed and after three days rise again. We know that Jesus predicted his resurrection because the Sanhedrin knew about this prediction, and in fact, they were afraid of it. They didn't believe in the promise of Jesus. They were, a, they were scared of it. They thought what's going to happen is he made this promise so the disciples of him who follow him are going to do something like steal his body and make it look like he was resurrected. So what they do is they ask Pilate to post guards in front of this sealed tomb. we got to make sure, Pilate, none of these disciples, these crazy radical disciples, steal the body and act like he's, I guess, weekend at Bernie's, something, I don't know, something like that. we got to stay away from that. Don't let it happen. They wanted to prevent any of Jesus' disciples from stealing the body and claiming he had been resurrected like he said he would. But, you know, Joseph doesn't fear the promise like the rest of the Sanhedrin does. He's inspired by this promise. Resurrection hope suddenly inspires Joseph to risk all his earthly hope. But I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the fact that hope has a mystery to it. If I don't address the fact that unlike earthly hope, Eternal hope requires us to embrace something we do not understand. There's part of what makes eternal hope so difficult for an unbelieving world to embrace. It is why the world is so skeptical of our eternal hope, because there is mystery to it. It's this mysterious aspect of eternal hope that makes the results of eternal hope so powerful, so impactful. See, Joseph risked everything the world could ever offer any first century Jew in Roman occupation, which is power and wealth and a member of the Sanhedrin council for what? A mysterious resurrection promise. There's no rational reason for Joseph of Arimathea to risk all of it. For a promised resurrection, he certainly can't be sure is going to happen. I mean, he hopes it will happen. He thinks it might happen. He, he thinks Jesus is telling the truth, but he can't know for sure. He doesn't know what the resurrection will look like. There are no earthly guarantees. He doesn't have the benefit of hindsight like we do. We celebrate the memory of the resurrection on Easter. He is looking forward to the possibility of the first Easter. He has no look into the future to see the power of the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire, to see the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God advance, he has no idea that the greatest movement in human history is about to launch the church of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have the benefit of reading about all these things that would happen, like Pentecost, Peter preaching on the southern steps of the temple in Acts 2, where thousands of people come to know Jesus, including many of the priests. He doesn't have any of that benefit. That hasn't happened yet. He doesn't know about the infamous, who he would know about, by the way, Saul of Tarsus, who loved to kill Christians. He has no idea that Saul will be saved and become Apostle Paul and replace Judas. He doesn't know about the churches that will spring up in Philippi and Colossae and Corinth and Ephesus and, in fact, Rome itself. There is no proof Jesus' promise will come true in a couple days. 
Yet he knows in that moment one thing. He just believes it. He just believes it. And it drives him to this action. Okay, let's look at the personal. What about us? What are we, do? what are we doing? Why and how do we do it? I want to talk about how we are inspired by, by hope, your eternal hope. This was the social media campaign I put out this week. Frequent, courageous sacrifice for the cause of Christ is the best indicator your hope is in eternity rather than this world. I want to explore a little bit more with you what eternal hope should mean for you. See, Joseph, we see from this passage, went all in on eternal hope, didn't he? I mean, at that moment, eternal hope was far more important to him than earthly hope, than the Sanhedrin, than being a Pharisee, than any ridicule he might face. He didn't care. He was all in on resurrection, eternal hope. Can you imagine? Just think about this. What a catastrophe Joseph's life would have been had he never, never even had eternal hope. Can you imagine, like, what a disaster? He just stayed a part of the Sanhedrin. Sure, he maintains his power. He maintains his wealth. But then he dies. And none of it matters. But for us, our eternal hope, what we are anticipating, is a little bit different, right? Since the resurrection is a historic event, that's what Joseph of Arimathea was looking to, hoping in. Our hope is in something different, a different promise that Jesus made. His return. I mean, isn't that the whole point of eternal hope? Hope for his return, or if we die before his return, we get to meet him face to face. Isn't that the whole point? You see, my goal today as I go through this idea of eternal hope is I want eternal hope to start to inspire you today just as it inspired Joseph of Arimathea on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago question for you. Do you currently live with any type of anticipation of that day that Jesus fulfills his promise? Do you even ever contemplate what it might look like? How you might feel? I mean, church, what else is there? I mean, if earthly hope is all there is to live for and it ends with death, then life is just nothing but a stupid cruel tease. Unfortunately, many people who claim Jesus are living between two hopes. The choice Joseph faced, choosing between eternal and earthly hope, is the same choice that you face today. Many who claim to follow Jesus, claim to follow Jesus, become very proficient at rationalizing living in between these two types of hope, earthly and heavenly on the one hand, we claim loyalty to the cross, but unlike Joseph, living as though Jesus is still dead on the cross. That's what we do. Our priorities, our actions, our choices all indicate earthly hope is actually our number one priority. Oh, we'll acknowledge eternal hope, but our actions say that our interest is really here in this earthly hope. But living between two hopes means you're still not sure you're convinced that you can trust the promises of Jesus. It means, in fact, that you trust the world just a little bit more than you do Jesus. 
It means you're still dabbling in how earthly hope might fulfill you. You still think that might be the answer to what the purpose of life means. Isn't that a great description of most people? Living in this constant tug of war between earthly hope and eternal hope. Which one am I going to choose today? Sooner or later, though, you're going to find, no matter who you are, no matter how good things have turned out for you on earth, you're going to find earthly hope will fail. You will lose your money. You will lose your job. You'll lose your health. You'll lose that relationship or you'll lose your life. And living that way, in between hope, or just focused on earthly hope, you know what that does? It leaves you wholly unprepared when earthly hope fails, this life ends, and then when eternity begins. You're not ready. So our job is to live inspired by eternity. See, this is the beautiful irony of this story. The birth of Joseph's eternal hope happens at the place where earthly hope always dies, a tomb. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Look what Matthew says in chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, that day, Joseph, you know what he did? He gave Jesus his own expensive tomb. He understood what Jesus meant by laying up treasures in heaven instead of earth. That day, Joseph realized that all his earthly hopes would never fulfill him. They would all end right there in that tomb. It could never take him as far as eternal hope could. For you, if all you have is earthly hope, then you will have nothing to face eternity with. See, I want you as your pastor and as your friend, I want you to be prepared for eternity now. I don't want you to wait. I don't want to take any more chances. So how can you, this is the question, how can you determine what hope you are resting in today? Is it earthly or eternal? Well, I believe if you're resting in eternal hope, it's going to produce choices quite similar to Joseph's. Eternal hope will inspire spiritual courage. Eternal hope will change your priorities. Eternal hope will enable you to turn your back on the allure, the addicting allure of earthly hope. See, I want you, and this is important, I want you to be liberated from your cruel prison of earthly hope. Because I can promise you this. It will never fully satisfy your hungry heart and your hurting soul. It's more like licking chapped lips. See, I want you to be inspired to live a life free from the empty pursuit of hoping and chasing dimes on earth. I want you to prepare instead for eternity and laying up treasures in heaven. 
If you want to learn the joy of living in anticipation of your Jesus fulfilling his promises, just as Joseph did, this is where it starts. And look, just like Joseph, and this is true, right? Just like Joseph, we don't know how it's all going to play out, this return of Jesus. We don't know how it's going to work. We don't know what it's going to look like, when it's going to happen. But you know what eternal hope does? It allows us to believe it will. And once you can genuinely believe, and and I hate to be so crass, but once you can genuinely believe that Jesus isn't some silly liar, eternal hope will give you all you want, which is a life with true purpose. Don't you want to be liberated from the pointless pursuit of earthly hope? Don't you want to be free to live a life built on hope in eternity? I mean, that's what Joseph experienced that day at the tomb. And that tomb is the symbol of why earthly hope is far inferior to eternal hope. Dear Jesus, we are in constant struggle with this alluring, addicting thing called earthly hope. We crave it, we desire it, we want it, we'll sacrifice almost anything for it, only to find out once we achieve what we think we wanted, what we think we need, we want something else. But some of us who you have worked in, you have called us just like you called the centurion, like you called Joseph of Arimathea. Some of us, you have given us the gift of faith and we're able to see, oh, it's not about earthly hope. It's about eternity. It's about hoping for the promises of Jesus to come true. Lord, there's nothing I can say or do to convince anyone to put their hope in something that's so mysterious as the Lord's return. That's something you have to do. And I'm asking you to do it today through the power of your Holy Spirit, through circumstances you bring about, that you would free people up from the burden of chasing dimes on earth where they can lay up treasures in heaven. Lord, I pray for those souls here who are itching. They're looking for the next type of earthly hope to fulfill them. Lord, I pray by the power of God that you'd work a miracle that would say, you don't have to look there anymore. Because it's all going to end at the tomb. Instead, help them see to look what comes out of the tomb. The resurrection of our Lord. And to look forward to the day when he comes and we see him face to face. And all the fear and anxiety and pain and sorrow melts away in the presence of our precious Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, it is Grace Life Easter, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, and then one conclusion week after that. But in the meantime, this week, start seeing if you can identify where earthly hope is creeping in, where eternal hope should be dominant. We love you. Have a great week. If you need anything, let us know. We've got your back.